If you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. We've been going through the book of 2 Peter. This is our series, and really the theme of this book is growing in grace. And it's Peter's final words. This is the Apostle Peter, the one who knew Christ well, the bold, kind of uh, not bashful, <laughs> the one who was right there with Christ, walked on the water, saw the transfiguration, denied Christ, but then was restored, preached at Pentecost. And here, Peter is writing this book at the end of his life, remember, and giving us his final words, his final encouragement, his final admonition. And it comes down to really the last verse in this book, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter was all about. Here in chapter 2, we're right in the middle of a section on false teachers. Chapter 1, he already told us the salvation we have, that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's shown us what Christ's likeness looks like, and that we have a sure and certain authority in the Word of God. And then in chapter 2, he turns to false teachers, because if you're going to tell any final words to anyone, you don't want to just give them encouragement, but warning, right, of what's going to happen, what's on the horizon, what to be aware of. So that's what we've been looking at here in chapter 2. And we've looked so far at the false teacher's influence. Then last week, we looked at the false teacher's certain demise, that God will take care of all things. He's going to make all things right, even though it doesn't always seem like it. Seems like there's injustice. Today, the portion that we're looking at, it's 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We're going to be looking at the false teacher's character. Character. What does it mean to have character or lack thereof? When you think of the word character, you could go to the dictionary definition and it just says, in accord with a person's usual qualities or traits, right? That's how they normally act. That's their character. Or the attributes or features that make up and distinguish an individual. That is your character. Many people throughout history have given quotes on character. And here's a few of those. One of them is, you can easily judge the character of a man by how he treats those who can do nothing for him. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Or Abraham Lincoln said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Or how about this one? The measure of a man's real character is what he would do if he knew he would never be found out. I can just get away with it. We talked about that last week. <laughs> or every man has these three characters, right? That which he shows, that which he has, and that which he thinks he has. Or this, reputation is what men and women think of us. Character is what God and the angels know of us. Or a couple of these are a little more tongue-in-cheek. Many a man's reputation would not know his character if they met each other on the street. Or if a man's character is to be abused, there's nobody like a relative to do the business. <laughs> or what did Solomon say? A good name is better than precious ointment, than riches. 
And what we're going to look at today is the false teacher's character and really what they're motivated by and what they want and what they desire in their greed. We're going to look at four points here with the false teacher's character. We're going to see that they're dismissive of evil powers, that they're driven by natural instinct, that their desires are abounding, and that they're directed to go astray. So three, four Ds, sorry, four Ds, demissive, driven, desires, and directed. They're going to look today at this false teacher's character. If you would, please read together with me 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 16, beginning in verse 10 now. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption." And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, spotting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Beguiling unstable souls and heart they have exercised with covetous practices cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam and the sons of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. The false teacher's character. There's, there was a young man whose name was Charles, and he he became very famous. He immigrated, actually, from Italy. He was from a wealthy family, but had fallen on hard times. So he decided to become a postal worker and, you know, put a lot of work into that. But, you know, at the turn of the century, 1908, around that time, his family was broke. And so he was hearing success stories in the land of opportunity. So he decided... I'll try to push my luck in America. So Charles arrived in Boston with $2.50 in his pocket. It's probably worth a little bit more back in 1908. And he worked his way up from washing dishes to waiting tables to finally a clerk and ultimately a bank manager. And then he started his own company, his own really investment company, an opportunity in, in postal coupons and a lot of people lined up to invest. And in fact, he made millions and he eventually settled in Brazil. So you hear that story of Charles and what would you say about his character? Fallen on hard times, hardworking, worked his way up from the bottom, right? And eventually got his dream retirement, right? But I didn't tell you Charles' last name. Charles' last name is Ponzi. If you ever heard of that word Ponzi, you know that most often attached to that is Ponzi scheme. There was a reason his family was poor. 
is that when in college, he went off with all his friends on great extravagant trips. There's a reason he had to work his way up because he got fired for stealing and other things, so he had to keep, keep switching jobs. And there's a reason he made millions is because of his Ponzi scheme where they would say, you rob Peter to pay Paul, where he'd take the first people's money and then make it look like their investment had grown by using that money to pay other people, and eventually it all fell apart. And it wasn't a retirement in Brazil. Oh, no, he had to flee to Brazil and was penniless in the end. So what was Charles Ponzi's true character? What was his character? Sometimes we don't always know all the facts, right? But his motivation really was greed, was money. He wanted more of that. We're going to see that today as we've seen in 2 Peter 2 here that there is this motivation and this character that underlies the false teacher, the person who promotes themselves, but their life does not match godliness or the character of Christ-likeness. We actually start in the second half of verse 10. That's where we left off last week. And it says there that they're presumptuous are they, self-willed. We looked at those words last week. But this last phrase, I believe, is actually tied in then to verse 11. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. What is Peter talking about here? He's actually saying that they're dismissive, I think, specifically of evil powers of evil angels. If you turn over to Jude, just a few pages over, this is the parallel book or parallel passage to 2 Peter 2 specifically. And in Jude verse 8, it echoes this sentiment but gives a little bit more detail. Because in Jude 8, it says, Likewise also these filthy dreamers, talking to false teachers, defile the flesh, despise dominion, they don't like authority, and speak evil of dignities. That same phrase in the last part of verse 10 in 2 Peter 2. But notice verse 9 of Jude. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not to bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So what's happening there? Well, we have very little info on this event, but we know Moses died, but his body was never found. And, eventually, and evidently, Michael, the archangel, one of the most powerful angels, actually came and took Moses' body, is, is the idea. But somewhere in that midst between heaven and getting to earth, there was some sort of fight or roadblock that Satan and Mike, Michael, the archangel, got into. Now, who is more powerful? That could be debated, right? Because Michael is really a very powerful, one of the most powerful, really the most powerful angel that we know about in God's, God's army, God's side. And yet when he came up against Satan, Michael was not flippant about it. And he actually said, the Lord rebuke thee. In other words, he wasn't trusting in his own strength or power to overcome Satan. And he let God handle it. So what does this all mean here then when it comes to false teachers and what we're looking here at 2 Peter? Well, I want to start off with a hierarchy of power because this has helped me think through it. Are there spiritual beings in the world today? Absolutely. You're a spiritual being. Are there those spiritual beings such as angels and demons that are real? Absolutely. 
How much do we know about them? Well, people have written a lot more than what the Bible says about these things, but yet the Bible does tell us what is true and what is right. So if you think of the hierarchy, you obviously have God at the top, right? He is the ultimate, the creator of all, everlasting, has all power. And everything, like there's this huge gap before you get to anything else because all the rest is created, creation. But under that, then you have angels. And I would put the good angels slightly above the bad angels because what happened? There was a rebellion. Satan rebelled against God. The angels rebelled against God. And God cast a third of them out of heaven because of their rebellion. So then I would put them slightly lower in power just because they don't have God on their side anymore, okay? You tracking with me? And their ultimate demise is, is assured, they're going to fall. So we call the good angels, usually we just call them angels, right? And we call the bad angels, normally we attribute the word demon to those. Does that make sense? So you have God, angels, demons, and then where are humans on this list? Well, I, I draw another gap that you don't want to mess with angels, right? Or even demons. Remember, even in Christ's time, there were people possessed with demons, and it was not something that they, in and of themselves, could overcome. But Christ, who is God, was able to cast them out. So you show, that shows you a little bit of the power that they had even over people. So what is Peter saying here, though, in Second Peter 10? He, he's saying that they're not afraid to speak evil or to blaspheme or to make light of the demonic realm. In other words, the thought here is false teachers, they either are flippant towards demonic, the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, or they think it doesn't have any power over me. So either I can defeat it or it doesn't have any power over me. In other words, it's very self-dependent. In other words, if a false teacher comes and they're giving a false teaching, they, they may say, you know, this is something I have thought up or created or what is the truth. And they don't realize at the same time that Satan, the father of lies is really on their side, is behind it. And, they're, and they're, they're ignorant to that or flippant towards that. Notice the several other Bible passages that speak of the spirit world and its effect on the lost or the unsaved. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. says, and you, that he's talking to believers, hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked, how? According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, the disobedience, the rebellion against God Satan is Satan enabled, is demonic enabled, is the idea that there's the spirit, that there's both a world philosophy and even a demonic philosophy that's at work that is actively trying to oppose God and his will and his way. And the false teachers are like, ah, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. No, they aren't taking it seriously. And where, where does all this, this, this come from? First John is also another Another passage, 1 John 4, verses 1 and 3, where it gives the admonition when a teacher does come into your midst, what are you to do about it? 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets 
are gone out into the world. And verse 3 tells us how we can know every spirit that confesses not Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of antichrist, whereof you have already heard that it should come, and even now it is in the world. Is the spirit of antichrist already in the world? In, in other words, are there people that are opposed to Christ in the world right now? Absolutely. And that, that force is there. So when it comes down to it, what is the application what am I telling or, or saying to us? Do we need to be afraid then of the demonic world? Is that what I'm saying? Do you need to live in fear every day if you're a believer about being possessed? Well, God does tell us, give no place to the devil. But if you are Christ, you are his. You don't have to worry about that. And it does tell us that we are in a spiritual warfare. It's a spiritual battle, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. So what do you do with this? Well, I think Michael the archangel actually gives us the example in Jude. What does he do? Does he try to fight Satan himself? No, what is his focus? Christ rebuked thee. In other words, even Michael, very powerful archangel, we're way down here, his response is, I'm going to go to Christ. I'm going to seek Christ. I'm going to pursue Christ. And that would be my same admonition to all of us when it comes even to false teachers and false teachings or the spiritual realm that we don't know much about and that could scare us is this, pursue Christ. Cling to Christ. Make Christ your focus. Because he has ultimate power over all. And so they're dismissive of these evil powers. The warning is, don't be dismissive, but focus on Christ. Peter then goes on, secondly, in verse 12, to show that they're driven by natural instinct. False teachers are driven by their own natural instinct. Notice the first part of verse 12. It says, but these as natural brute beasts. That doesn't sound very kind, right? If you were to call someone a brute beast, just a brute alone. What is he saying here? They're natural. In other words, they do everything according to their sinful nature. That's what they're following. They're following their natural sin nature. And that's what they go after and that's what they obey. And they're brute beasts. The idea here is they don't make rational choices. Is logic and rash, ration, is that highly esteemed in our world today, right? Many intellectuals, many people who would put forth, this is the scientific proof. And what are they doing? They think they're actually relying on natural, on logic. But what God is saying here is if it's devoid of me, you're actually relying on your own sinful nature. When you come to conclusions that are devoid of God, Anything without faith is sin. It's not really a rational choice. It's not logical. In other words, people who would per, uh, profess to be very logical, you know, very orderly and all of that, but then deny God as a logical outcome, that's not based on pure logic. That's actually having to jump over very many obvious things, such as creation or the fact that God has put eternity into your heart. You know that your soul lives on. 
somewhere forever. And you're having to ignore, ignore those things that should be natural and, and logical because of your own sinful nature. And so false teachers, they just follow their own sinful nature, just like a beast would, without reason, irrational. And Peter goes on to say, made to be taken and destroyed. They're like animals in a jungle that you would go out and capture and put on display in a zoo. In other words, their own demise is certain. They think they're in control, right? The tiger thinks he's in control, but he's actually been captured and put under the control of someone else. And these people are blind to it. These false teachers are blind that their own sinful nature and the spiritual realm of Satan is actually what has captured and then God will actually destroy them. So what do they do? When they're driven by instinct, notice the last part of verse 12, they speak evil of the things they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. It has this idea behind it. They boast in their own ignorance. Are there some really smart people out there that are devoid of God? Yeah. This is the idea. They're boasting and they're proud of their own ignorance. And they teach without divine knowledge. In other words, they're devoid of the scripture, of what it says, of actually following it. Now, they may use it, right? Because you always got to salt the poison with a little bit of good food, right? Rat poison always tastes good to the rat. But at the end thereof is death, right? So they may use the scripture, may use the word, but it's really things they don't understand and out of their own ignorance. And then what do they do? They perish in their own corruption. This is actually a play on words. The word perish and corruption are actually the same word in a way. They say, by destroying, they shall be destroyed. The idea is false teachers are out there and they're destroying people. They're destroying people's lives. They're destroying people's spiritual lives. And God is saying, by the same measure that they destroyed, they will be destroyed as well. In other words, God's keeping an account. God knows. God's keeping a record. And as they have spoiled and destroyed others, they shall be destroyed. And that's what Peter goes on then in verse 13 to say, and shall receive then the reward of unrighteousness. Do you want a reward for all your hard work? Do you want a paycheck after you worked a long week? Say, yes, I deserve that, right? And God is saying, if you live a life of unrighteousness, as these false teachers do, and teach and preach that, and you're going after your own desire, your own natural desire, your reward is going to be the same. You're going to get your reward, but it's actually that of unrighteousness. The idea here is paid back, line for line, item for item. So God knows, and he's keeping account. Each wrongdoing, each false teaching. Now, we're, we're focused on false teachers, and you may say, wait, I'm not a false teacher, though, right? So I just have to worry about that in other people's lives. But the warning here should not pass by us too quickly and say, examine our own heart, our own life. Am I living according to my own natural desires? In other words, am I just doing what I want to do? Am I living life devoid of God? You say, Pastor Phil, I'm on church on a Sunday. Of course I'm not doing that. I think we all know we can go to church. We can look good. 
But we're not talking about the outward, right? We're talking about the character, what's on the inside. And so God knows every single wrongdoing and thing. And unless it's covered in the blood of Christ and you're pursuing him, it's a big deal. There's a big judgment coming. So they receive the reward of unrighteousness, verse 13, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Now, have we had a few riots in our country <laughs> the past few months, right? So when, when we hear that word riot, what do you think of? Burning the city to the ground, setting up your own independent autonomous country with your own police department or lack thereof, right? That's what you think of in, in a riot. Well, this word riot, yeah, it, it ties in with that type of living. You know, it's devoid of authority. You're, you're pushing off all other authority. But it also has the idea of just living in luxury. Living in luxury. Living in a utopia, <laughs> almost. The idea is that I'm going to fulfill all of my desires at all times. That's this idea of living or, or in a riot, or counting it pleasure to live in a riot. And why does it say in the daytime? Well, when does most illicit activity take place? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And there's both a spiritual sense, but also a literal sense to that, right? Because of your conscience, you want to hide things that even the unsaved man knows is morally wrong. And so you try to do that in darkness, in cover, out of the sight of people, right? God will never know, but he does. But here, it's, they're so bold, they're not just doing it in the nighttime, they're doing it in the daytime as well. In other words, it's out there, and it's blatant, and it's in your face. I'm going to live my life my way. Now, when did Peter write this? This was 2,000 years ago. Does it sound like anything that's happening today, though? So does that tell you something about human nature, about mankind, about that nothing's going to take God by surprise, about the world that we're living in right now, even though you may look at it and say, you know, it's just going all downhill. It didn't take Peter by surprise. It didn't take the Lord by surprise. It shouldn't take us by surprise, but we should be alert and aware. And then he ends this section, the end, end part of verse 13, where he's saying, spots they are and blemishes. The idea there is stains and scabs. Stains and scabs. You have a nice pair of bed sheets. Maybe they're bright white. But then they get stained. Now they're gross. You don't want those anymore. Can't get the stain out. Or blemishes, that's the idea of, you know, mosquito bite on your arm, you scratch, you scratch, you scratch. I know you shouldn't, but you do. And then what do you have afterwards? A scab that forms over that. And that's what these false teachers are sprinkled among. There, there's these spots, these stains, these blemishes that are marring and tarring what is supposed to be right and good. And so what do you do with spots and stains and blemishes and scabs? Do you keep those around or do you get rid of them? And that's the idea is you get rid of them. So they're sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. To them, it's just a game is the idea. They're sporting themselves, 
trying to see wanting upping even themselves with their own deceivings. They're deceived, but they're also deceiving while they feast with you. And what is their deceivings? Well, part of it is the idea of I'm doing whatever I want and you can do whatever you want to. In other words, it's this free, free libertarian type thing where everybody just do what you want and God is okay with that. In other words, it's really hard for them to say no or to preach the truth about God's judgment. So you need to be very concerned about someone who is just telling you what your natural man wants to hear, right? You need to be aware of that and warned about that. You need to be aware of people who are just telling others, everything's okay, everything's all right. You can do whatever you want. It's okay. It's all covered. You know, it's all under grace. You need to be warned of those types of people. Or even that thought in your own heart of, yeah, I can do that. With no thought of, what does God think? What does God want? What would God have me to do? So, false teachers, they're dismissive of evil powers. They don't think it's a big deal, yet they're still controlled by them. They're driven by their own natural instinct. They just do what they do because that's who they are. And then their desires, thirdly, their desires are abounding. They're wrong desires. Look at verse 14. It says it many different ways. But verse 14 starts off with having eyes full of adultery. Peter focuses on their sight. The idea here is the lust of the eyes, just like 1 John 2.16 talks about. The idea here is lustful, pleasure-driven, desirous thoughts all the time. The idea here is there's no self-control. That if my mind is tempted to think it, that's what I think. If I'm tempted to lust on another person, that's what I do. Eyes full of adultery. They're going after it. So notice, it's, it's not just what they say or teach. It's their character that betrays them. It's what they do, how they live. So eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin. I cannot cease from sin. Have you ever met someone like that? I just can't help it. I just can't stop it. What is that saying? Part of what that's saying is the power of God either is not in their life or is not fully realized in their life. Because believers, yes, we struggle too, right? But what has God given us? 1 Peter 1, 3. Everything we need for life and for godliness. Now the struggle, the growth and sanctification, the growing in grace, the putting off of the old man, putting on or or denying our flesh, however you want to phrase that, I understand that is a work, that is a progress, that is God's grace working in our hearts. But when someone says, I just can't help it, or I'm not going to stop, or I can't stop, won't stop, or I'm just looking for satisfaction, right? And I'm not going to stop until I get it. Someone that cannot cease from sin, that's an indicator 
that they're not of God, that they are a false teacher. Now, let me take a a brief pause here because I want to be clear that Christians still struggle with sin, okay? So, my goal here is not for you to doubt your salvation if you are saved. Do you understand? If you are not saved, then I want you to come face to face with that reality, graciously, by God's grace. But knowing that God has given you the grace to fight daily, to overcome temptation, that you are freed from the power of sin. Sin's curse, sin's power has been broken on you if you are a believer. And so growth should happen. Now, when you're growing, do you always notice? Does my son always notice? Like, do we as parents always notice? Elias just turned six last week. He's already up to here on Samantha. That guy is way too tall for a six-year-old. I remember he used to be just this big, right? And he has grown. And it's hard to see that growth right away. But year after year, you're saying, yeah, there is growth there. There's evidence of life and, and signs of life there. He has shot up and he has grown. So growing in grace isn't always as visible as we want it to seem either. But here's what I encourage you to do. If you're a believer to look back on your life and seen and ask this question, how has God changed me? How has God given me victory in the past? And you look back, and I I guarantee if you are a believer, you will be able to see God's working in your own heart, in your own life, how he has grown and changed you to become more like Christ. Now, are we done? Am I done? No. (laughs) Well, we haven't arrived yet. God's still working on us. But God grows those who are his. So false teachers, again, verse 14, they cannot cease from sin. They're beguiling unstable souls. The idea of beguiling here is to catch by bait. I like to go fishing. Sometimes you can put just the hook in the water and the fish are so eager that they'll bite that. But most of the time, what do you do? You wrap it up in something bright and shiny or something tasty and smelly that the fish like. But what's inside that bait? It's a sharp hook that grabs them. And that's the idea here. The false teachers are putting something, presenting something that looks so good and so enticing, but their hook is in it. Maybe you get the door-to-door salesman at your door, right? They're always so nice, right? If you actually answer the door. Or, or you know, if they haven't uh, actually followed the no soliciting sign that you might have on your door. They're always so nice, right? They want to know how, how you're doing, how the weather is. You have such a great house. What a great location. No matter where you are, right? But then there's always a, something there because they're trying to sell you something. Well, you ratchet that way up. That's just really a small example, but way up. And false teachers are trying to hook you in in a much more deadly way. Unstable souls has the idea of not anchored securely. So what are false teachers doing? They're catching by bait with a hook in it, unstable souls. Those are the people that aren't anchored securely. What's the admonition, the application then? It's if you're a believer, be anchored securely. What does that mean? Where are you anchored to spiritually right now? Who is your rock? Who is your steadfastness? Peter, his name meaning the rock, 
was anchored to the ultimate rock, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. So make sure that your soul, your life, all that you are is anchored securely to Christ. Back at verse 14, and a heart they have exercised with covetous practices. This word exercise is the same word used in 1 Timothy 4, 7, but exercise thyself rather unto godliness. It has the idea of a gymnast putting in long hours, doing repetitive tasks over and over and over again. You're going to train yourself to be really good at that thing. And that word can mean that you can train yourself to be really, really covetous, to desire and to have greed for things. How do you train yourself that? Constantly looking and saying, I want that, I want that. You know, you just want more. And, and you train yourself and you're building that in yourself. How do you train yourself rather unto godliness as Paul challenges Timothy? Well, it has to do with knowing God's word and knowing Jesus and his working in your life. So a heart they have exercised with covetous practices. And then he ends this section with these two words, cursed children. What does it mean to be a cursed children? Well, it means that even though you think, false teachers think they're in charge, they're in control, they have authority over their lives, this idea here is that they're actually servants of Satan and slaves to sin. And the cursed part is the judgment then that comes because of that. And so it's, it's, it's almost a sad unhappy ending type thing for these false teachers. They're cursed children. So we've seen false teachers, their character, dismissive of evil powers. They're driven by natural instinct. Their desires are abounding. And lastly, they're, they're directed to go astray. Look at verse 15. It says, which these false teachers have forsaken the right way. Peter's going to get into this a little bit away. But what does that tell you? If they've forsaken the right way, it means they knew of the right way. So they, they could have known the truth. They could have followed the truth, in other words. But they have chosen to forsake that based on their own desires, their own wishes, and they've gone astray. I was reading recently of the many climbers who have tried to scale Mount Everest. And, you know, it's, it's looked at like a, at a pinnacle or height of achievement because it's the tallest mountain elevation-wise in the world, right? And to get up to Everest, you know, it took a lot for a lot of support. It takes a lot of oxygen. It takes a lot of support staff on the way. And even with all of that, there are still people who are trying to push the limits and the boundaries, right? So people will try to do it without oxygen tanks, so what happens when you're up at that high of elevation? I have enough trouble breathing at like 9,000, 10,000, 11,000 feet. And this is way, way higher than that. What happens? Well, the mind, if you don't have oxygen in your brain, you start to become somewhat delirious. And what happens? There are set paths on Mount Everest, many different ways that you are to get up. Yet there are people that in their lack of ox oxygen have become delirious and have strayed from the right path, and then what happens? Well, death. So there are many people that have died. And when you die on Mount Everest, where are you buried? On Mount Everest. In fact, there are bodies 
some, in some places at certain times that were used as mile markers or signposts. So it was turn left at the green guy. Literally, because he had, he had, he had forsaken the right way, the path, and tried to do something, obviously, that he could not handle. And, and many people met their demise that way. So to stray off the path is the idea here. But what ends up happening when you stray off the path? You get lost. You get frozen. There's judgment. So these false leaders, they've forsaken the right way. They've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. We're going to end by looking at this story of Balaam. If you turn to Numbers chapter 22, Numbers 22, Numbers 22 through 25 uh, really give this account of Balaam. We're just going to hit a few verses here for sake of time, but I encourage you to read it. As far as what's going on, what's happening in Israel's history, and how Balaam comes into the scene. So Numbers 22, the first three verses give the setup for the issue. It says in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1, And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all Israel, what they had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. There's too many people. They're taking over. They're destroying our land. So this, this bad king thought, what am I going to do about it? I'm stressed out about this situation. Well, he calls up this guy named Balaam, who's a prophet, and says to him, verse 6, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, Curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Peradventure I shall prevail that we may smite them, and I may drive them out of the land. For I wot that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and him whom thou cursest is cursed. Balaam, can you help me with my big problem? I want you to go to God's chosen people, the Israelites, and I want you to curse them so I at least have a little bit of a fighting chance, because so far they've taken out everyone. What does Balaam do? Well, God tells him what to do. Verse 12, God said to Balaam, thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. In other words, you go and try and curse what God has blessed, you're going to have problems. And Balaam found that out the hard way. Well, what does he do? So verse 15, Balaam Balaam, uh, says, no, I'm not going to do it. So what does Balak do? Well, he sends Verse 15, Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said, Thus, shall, thus saith Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee hinder, thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. So the king ups the pressure. God told you no, Balaam. No, I really want you to come and I'll give you more money and I'll give you more honor, honor and all that comes with that. So Balaam says, Okay, I'll, I'll go to bed and see if God gives me any new information even though God was quite clear before, right? Don't go curse whom I've blessed. So God says, okay, if they call you yet a third time, you can get up and you can go with them, but only say what I tell you. And Balaam was like, that's enough for me. I'm going to go because I want the money. This is the idea behind it. So he, could, he kind of overstepped even God's bounds, but his desires, we'll see, was for wealth, 
for greed. And so Balaam goes with them. And in verse 22, it says, God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And it goes through in the next few verses how the donkey continued to see this angel and try to go a different way or go around the angel. But Balaam was blind to the angel, so the donkey kept crushing his legs because it was a small passageway. And so Balaam starts beating his donkey, right? Because it's not doing what he says. And I find this hilarious. It says that the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey just looks up at Balaam and says, why are you hitting me? I've been with you my entire life. Have I ever done this to you before? And I don't know about you, but if my horse or donkey started talking to me, I don't know what I would say. But Balaam, it's hilarious. He just carries on a normal conversation like nothing's wrong with this donkey. And he says, well, yeah, you've been really good to me, but you keep on crushing me. So in other words, he glosses all over the, the whole part of a talking donkey because he's so ambitious on his goal really for greed, reward, for riches. So the Lord opens his eyes and he sees the angel. And what ends up happening then is, is he realizes, okay, I can't fight against this. So he goes and he offers sacrifices, but instead he gives a blessing on God's people. Balak the king gets really mad at him. He said, let's try this again. So they go to a different mountain, offer more sacrifices to God, and Balaam blesses the people again. Balak's really mad now. He's saying, why do you keep blessing them? Let's try this a third time. Third time's a charm, right? They go to the third mountain, different place. Maybe God knows, you know, maybe, God, you're, maybe your God isn't in this mountain. You know, he's thinking by changing locations, you can change God's mind. That, that, that's the thought here. They go to the third mountain. Balaam blesses the children yet again. Balak says, get out of my sight. But Balaam says, before I go, I just want you to know that I can only do what God allows me to do. I can only bless them. I can't curse them. So that's why I've blessed them. But at the bottom of this mountain, just so you know, there's a lot of Baal worship going on. So even though I can't curse the people, if you get them to disobey God, you following me? They'll just curse themselves. And you know what? That's exactly what we see in Jude verse 11 and also Revelations 2.14. Revelation 2.14, it says, But I have a few things. This is Christ talking to the church in Pergamos. Revelation 2.14, he says, But I have a few things against thee, Christ, to this church, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. I have something against you because what did Balaam do? He couldn't curse them, but he taught them how to sin. It's basically what it came down to. And then you see Numbers 22 through 24 is that story of Balaam. Numbers 25, guess what the children are doing? They're down at the bottom of that third mountain committing fornication, and worshiping Baal. And that's how the false teacher got him. He couldn't curse them, but he could lead them astray by telling them to sin against God. 
So as we close, are there false teachers or false teachings in your own heart and life today? That's something that you need to consider. Am I dismissive of evil powers? Am I driven by my own natural instinct with no care of what God says? Are my desires overbounding? I have no control. Am I directed to go astray? Am I I on the wrong path, even though you know the truth? The call here is to get on the right path, to follow Christ, to know him in his way. Or if there's people in your lives that are teaching what is wrong, to treat them like the spots, the blemishes, the stains, the scabs, get rid of them. And that's what God's calling us to do. He's calling and saying, is your character, is it based on your own desires or is it based on the fact that Christ lives in you and by his grace, you are pursuing his portrait of what it looks like to be Christ-like?